This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of proximal third tibia fracture from the trauma section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Proximal third tibia fractures are relatively common fractures of the proximal tibial shaft that are associated with high rates of soft tissue compromise and malunion, which will typically be valgus and procurvatum. Diagnosis is made with orthogonal radiographs of the tibia with CT scan often required to assess for intraarticular extension. Treatment generally consists of surgical open reduction and internal fixation versus intramedullary nail fixation. Now let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, the incidence of proximal third tibia fractures are common and make up 5 to 11% of all tibial shaft fractures. Moving on to the etiology, as far as the pathophysiology, the mechanism of proximal third tibia fractures can be from low energy mechanisms or high energy mechanisms. Low energy mechanisms are typically the result of torsional injury, which will cause a spiral oblique fracture, or it can be from indirect trauma. The mechanism of high energy injuries is direct trauma. Associated conditions with proximal third tibia fractures include compartment syndrome and soft tissue injury, and know that the severity of muscle injury has the greatest impact on the need for amputation. Now, let's go over some relevant anatomy. Specifically, we'll go over the osteology and muscles. So starting with osteology, the proximal tibia is triangular, has a wide metaphyseal region, and is narrowed distally. In terms of muscles, deforming forces on the proximal tibia include the patellar tendon, gastrocnemius, pes anserinus, and the anterior compartment musculature. The patellar tendon deforms the proximal fragment into extension and can create a fracture into apex anterior or progravatum. The gastrocnemius brings the distal fragment into flexion. The pes anserinus brings the proximal fragment into varus, and this is the varus deforming force of the fracture. Finally, the anterior compartment musculature is the valgus deforming force of the fracture. Now, let's talk about the classification of proximal third tibial shaft fractures. And the one to know is the AO classification, which corresponds to region 42. And this is divided into three types, type A, type B, and type C. Type A corresponds to a simple fracture pattern, type B corresponds to a wedge fracture pattern, and type C corresponds to a comminuted fracture pattern. Now, let's talk about the presentation of proximal third tibial shaft fractures. Symptoms include pain and inability to bear weight. On physical exam, inspection may reveal contusions, blisters, open wounds, and be sure to inspect the compartments with palpation, passive motion of the toes, and intracompartmental pressure measurement if indicated. Neurovascular evaluation on physical exam should assess the deep perineal nerve, the superficial perineal nerve, the sural nerve, the tibial nerve, the saphenous nerve, the dorsalis pedis, and the posterior tibial artery. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP, lateral, ipsilateral knee, tibia, and ankle. Findings may include a proximal fracture that is extended apex anterior and varus with a distal fragment flexed. As far as the proximal fracture being extended apex anterior and varus, remember that the apex is extended due to the patellar tendon and is varus due to the pes anserinus plus the anterior compartment. The distal fragment is flexed due to the gastrocnemius. A CT scan may be indicated if there's a question of intraarticular fracture extension. The differential diagnosis for proximal third tibia fractures include tibial shaft fractures, knee dislocation, and tibial plateau fractures, which we'll discuss in more detail in separate podcast episodes. As far as the diagnosis of proximal third tibia fractures, diagnosis is confirmed by clinical presentation and radiographs. Moving on to the treatment of proximal third tibia fractures, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes closed reduction slash cast immobilization, and this is indicated for closed low-energy fractures with acceptable alignment, 
which includes less than 5 degrees of varus valgus angulation, less than 10 degrees of anterior slash posterior angulation, greater than 50% of cortical apposition, less than 1 centimeters of shortening, and less than 10 degrees of rotational alignment. In terms of outcomes, shortening is most difficult to control with non-operative management. Angulation and rotational control are difficult to achieve by closed methods, and the extent of shortening and translation on injury radiographs should be expected at the time of union. Operative options include external fixation, intramedullary nailing, and percutaneous locking plates. External fixation is indicated for fractures with extensive soft tissue compromise or in polytrauma patients. In terms of outcomes, there is a higher incidence of malalignment with external fixation than intramedullary nailing. Moving on to intramedullary nailing, the indications is enough proximal bone to accept two locking screws that is 5 to 6 centimeters. In terms of outcomes, know that intramedullary nailing has high rates of malunion with improper technique, and the most common malunion is valgus and apex anterior, otherwise known as procurvatum. Moving on to percutaneous locking plates, the indications are for extreme proximal fractures, inadequate proximal fixation for IM nailing, this is best suited for transverse or oblique fractures, and it's also indicated in the setting of minimal soft tissue compromise. In terms of outcomes, know that lateral plating with medial comminution can lead to varus collapse. Long plates may place the superficial perineal nerve at risk, and know that there is a higher infection rate with percutaneous locking plates than intramedullary nailing for open fractures. Now let's go over some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. Starting with close reduction slash cast mobilization, the technique will involve placing the leg in a long leg cast and converting it to a functional brace at 4 weeks. Be sure to cast in 10 to 20 degrees of flexion. Moving on to external fixation, in terms of the technique, biplanar and multiplanar pin fixators are useful. Circular frames can be indicated for very proximal fractures, and these can be safely converted to an intramedullary nail within 7 to 21 days. Moving on to intramedullary nailing, the approach can be a lateral parapatellar approach or a suprapatellar approach. Lateral parapatellar approach helps maintain the reduction for proximal third fractures. Keep in mind that this approach requires a mobile patella, and know that a medial parapatellar approach may lead to a valgus deformity. A suprapatellar approach facilitates nailing in the semi-extended position. Moving on to the technique, the starting point for an intramedullary nail is proximal to the anterior edge of the articular margin, just medial to the lateral tibial spine. Know that the use of a more lateral starting point may decrease a valgus deformity, while the use of a medial starting point may create a valgus deformity. In terms of fracture reduction techniques, the ones to know include a blocking or polar screws, unicortical plating, or a universal distractor. In terms of blocking or polar screws, you can have a coronal blocking screw and a sagittal blocking screw. A coronal blocking screw prevents apex anterior or procurvatum deformity. Be sure to place this screw in the posterior half of the proximal fragment. The sagittal blocking screw prevents valgus deformity, and you will place this on the lateral concave side of the proximal fragment. Remember, you can enhance the construct stability if the blocking screws are not removed. Moving on to unicortical plating, a short one-third tubular plate is placed anteriorly, anteromedially, or posteromedially across the fracture. It will secure both proximally and distally with two unicortical screws. Finally, a universal distractor involves shans pins inserted from the medial side parallel to the joint, and a pin may additionally be used as blocking screws. As far as nail insertion, options include a standard insertion with the knee in flexion, as well as nail insertion in the semi-extended position, which may help to prevent apex anterior or procurvatum deformity, as it neutralizes the deforming forces of the extensor mechanism. As far as locking screws, you will statically lock proximally and distally for rotational stability, and know that there is no indication for dynamic locking acutely. 
Remember that you must use at least two proximal locking screws. Complications to be aware of from intramedullary nailing include malunion, specifically a valgus and apex anterior or procurvatum deformity. Finally, let's talk about percutaneous locking plates, and the approach is typically anterolateral. Know that a straight or a hockey stick incision can be made anterolaterally from just proximal to the joint line, if there is intraarticular extension, to just lateral to the tibial tubercle and extend distally as needed. As far as the technique, a percutaneous locking plate may be used medially or laterally, and know that better soft tissue coverage laterally makes lateral plating safer. As far as complications to be aware of, you may have a superficial perineal nerve injury with the use of a longer plate. Another complication to be aware of is varus collapse if lateral plating only is used with medial comminution. Now let's go over some overall complications from proximal third tibia fractures. The ones to know include anterior knee pain, non-union, and malunion. As far as the incidence of anterior knee pain, this occurs in more than 30% of cases treated with intramedullary nailing, and this resolves with removal of intramedullary nailing in 50% of cases. In terms of non-union, infection must be ruled out first, and dynamization should be done if axially stable. In terms of malunion, the most common is valgus and apex anterior or procurvatum. This increases the long-term risk of arthrosis. As far as incidence, there is a 20 to 60% rate of malunion following intramedullary nailing that is valgus and procurvatum. Prevention of malunion includes a laterally based starting point and an anterior insertion angle. Entry of the IM nail should be in line with the medial border of the lateral tibial eminence. Blocking screws placed in the metaphyseal segment on the concave side of the deformity. Use of provisional unicortical plates, semi-extended position for nailing, and universal distractors. With respect to blocking screws placed in the metaphyseal segment on the concave side of the deformity, be sure to place laterally to prevent valgus and posterior to prevent procurvatum in the proximal fragment. This narrows the available space for the intramedullary nail, and be sure to direct the nail towards a more centralized position. Treatment of malunion includes revision intramedullary nailing, as well as osteotomy if the fracture is healed. Finally, as far as the prognosis of proximal third tibia fractures, know that there is a high rate of malunion following intramedullary nailing. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question, infrapatellar intramedullary nailing for proximal third tibia fractures when compared to suprapatellar nailing is associated with, and the choices are one, increased knee range of motion, two, decreased incidence of malalignment, three, more anterior knee pain, four, changes in the patellofemoral joint, and five, earlier time to union. The correct answer to this question is three, more anterior knee pain. So suprapatellar and infrapatellar nailing are both accepted treatments for proximal third tibia fractures. Compared to suprapatellar nailing, infrapatellar nailing has been associated with more anterior knee pain. To quickly review, proximal third tibia fractures account for approximately 10% of all tibia fractures. Suprapatellar nailing is advantageous for these more proximal fractures as it facilitates the fracture reduction through the semi-extended position of the knee. In addition, studies that have compared suprapatellar to infrapatellar nailing techniques have demonstrated that the former results in less anterior knee pain than infrapatellar nailing. Sanders et al. prospectively evaluated the clinical and radiographic results associated with the use of suprapatellar intramedullary nailing using a semi-extended approach. They reported a mean arc of knee motion of 124.4 degrees for the affected extremity compared with 127.2 degrees for the contralateral knee with no patients complaining of anterior knee pain. 
Moreover, in patients that underwent arthroscopic assessment of the patellofemoral joint, no cartilage changes or pressure points were seen either at the patella or at the trochlea groove. The authors concluded that suprapatellar nailing resulted in excellent knee range of motion with rare sequela in the patellofemoral joint based on immediate arthroscopy and one-year postoperative MRI scans. Chen et al. prospectively compared the clinical and functional outcomes of the knee joint after infrapatellar versus suprapatellar tibial nail insertion in 25 patients. The authors reported no difference between the affected and unaffected knee with respect to the range of motion despite a higher prevalence of anterior knee pain in the infrapatellar group. They concluded that there were no clinically significant patellofemoral joint damage in the suprapatellar group. Gelbke et al. quantified the patellofemoral contact pressures and forces during infrapatellar and suprapatellar intramedullary tibial nail insertion in fresh-frozen hemicadavers. The authors reported that the patellofemoral pressures and forces, as well as peak contact pressures, were higher in the suprapatellar group than the infrapatellar group, with the mean peak contact pressure on the patella and femoral condyles being 1.84 megapascals, with the range being between 1.09 to 2.95 megapascals and 2.13 megapascals, with the range being 1.1 to 2.86 megapascals, respectively, during suprapatellar nailing. They noted that the structural integrity of articular cartilage is compromised at impact loads exceeding 25 megapascals, and chondrocyte apoptosis can occur at sustained loads of as little as 4.5 megapascals. They concluded that although the patellofemoral contact pressures are higher with suprapatellar nail insertion, they remain below the values reported to be detrimental to articular cartilage. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, increased knee range of motion is incorrect, as knee range of motion has been found to be similar between suprapatellar and infrapatellar nailing techniques. Answer 2, decreased incidence of malalignment is incorrect, as suprapatellar nailing has been found to facilitate reduction in proximal third tibia fractures. Answer 4, changes in the patellofemoral joint is incorrect, as both immediate arthroscopy and follow-up MRI have demonstrated no significant postoperative changes in the patellofemoral joint following suprapatellar nailing. And finally, answer 5, earlier time to union is incorrect, as time to union is comparable between both suprapatellar and infrapatellar nailing techniques. Moving on to the next question. A 45-year-old male sustains a proximal third tibia fracture as an isolated injury and elects to undergo operative treatment with intramedullary nailing. Postoperative radiographs show excessive procrovatum deformity. Which of the following operative techniques would have helped to best avoid the procrovatum deformity? And the choices are 1. Tibial nailing with increased knee flexion. 2. Lateral blocking screw in the proximal fragment. 3. Medial blocking screw in the proximal fragment. 4. Anterior blocking screw in the proximal fragment. And 5. Posterior blocking screw in the proximal fragment. The correct answer to this question is 5. Posterior blocking screw in the proximal fragment. So posterior blocking screws in the proximal tibial segment help to avoid tibial procrovatum deformity and malunion. Proximal third tibia fractures are oftentimes difficult to reduce anatomically due to the tendency for both valgus and flexion deformity at the fracture site. The posterior blocking screw helps to eliminate the tendency for the nail to be too posterior and cause the fracture to flex. Blocking screws should be placed on the concavity of the deformity to minimize the procrovatum and valgus deformities of this fracture pattern. Credic et al., looked at the importance of using blocking screws during intramedullary nailing of metaphyseal fractures using small diameter nails. They found less procrovatum deformity and malunions associated with use of blocking screws and found no complication with their utilization. 
Ricci et al. reviewed fractures of the proximal third of the tibial shaft treated with intramedullary nails and blocking screws. Their results supported that blocking screws were effective in maintaining alignment of fractures of the proximal third of the tibial shaft treated by intramedullary nailing. Heisterman et al. reviewed different reduction techniques to avoid malalignment, including the use of a proper starting point and insertion angle, blocking screws, unicortical plates, and a universal distractor. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, tibial nailing with increased knee flexion is incorrect, as this would exacerbate procrovatum deformity. Answer 2, lateral blocking screw in the proximal fragment is incorrect, as this would help avoid valgus deformity. Answer 3, medial blocking screw in the proximal fragment is also incorrect, as this would exacerbate valgus deformity. And finally, answer 4, anterior blocking screw in the proximal fragment is incorrect, as this would exacerbate procrovatum deformity. And moving on to the final question, which of the following techniques has not been shown to prevent valgus angulation during intramedullary nailing of proximal one-third tibia fractures? And the choices are 1, use of a blocking screw lateral to the midline in the proximal segment, 2, use of a femoral distractor, 3, use of a lateral tibial nail starting point, 4, use of supplementary plate and screw fixation, and 5, use of a suprapatellar nailing portal. The correct answer to this question is 5, use of a suprapatellar nailing portal. So proximal tibial shaft fractures treated with intramedullary nails are most commonly malreduced with apex anterior and valgus deformities. Several techniques are available to overcome this malalignment. Proximal and lateral nail starting point, usage of ephemeral distractor or temporary plating, suprapatellar nailing, and lateral parapatellar approaches. Suprapatellar nailing portals have not been shown to affect coronal angulation. The concept is to affect the apex anterior deformity. A final technical trick is the usage of blocking or polar screws. The article by Ricci et al. had 100% correction and maintenance of reduction with the usage of blocking screws without other adjunct techniques. These blocking screws should be placed in the lateral aspect of the proximal and distal fragments when needed. Remember, the blocking screws should go in the concavity of the deformity or where you don't want the nail to go. Again, the study by Credic et al. is a biomechanical evaluation of blocking screws in a tibial model that showed significantly increased strength when they were utilized. That's all for this review about proximal third tibia fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.